Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Radical Christianity. I'm glad that you have decided to tune into this episode. If you're a new uh, listener, if you're a returning guest, always glad to have you back. And I hope that you have enjoyed the first season of this new podcast so far. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a very cool opportunity you have to uh, basically hear the Word of God outside of going to church on Sunday. Uh, I'm sure some of you know that there's a pastor uh, named Dr. David Jeremiah, and his uh, ministry app uh, that you can download on your device is called Turning Point. And he is in the middle of a series of, of knowing uh, of knowing God, basically. He's talked about knowing a holy God, knowing a faithful God. And I just want to encourage you to tune into that series. It's been a blessing to me. I've really enjoyed it so far. Uh, it's uh, It actually comes with videos, so not only can you listen to it, you can actually you know watch him preach. And I think it'll just be uh, an extra bit of blessing to your day. And uh, I've also been reading a book. Uh, I can't remember the title of the book. Sorry about that. But basically, it's it's teaching me about um, the spiritual disciplines. Basically, you know, prayer, uh, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, fasting, things such of that nature. And it has really been... Uh, a been a, a help to me. It's really helped me grow. Uh, and I would encourage you to, uh, you know, just think about that in your own life. How, how are you doing when it comes to practicing your spiritual disciplines? How's your prayer life? How is your intake of the Word of God? How are you meditating on the Word of God? Are you studying it or are you just reading the passages? Are you striving to memorize the verses? And I would say, you know, the one thing that I've learned that's really impacted me so far is that before you can really hone your spiritual disciplines, you first have to work on your self-control. Self-control is an area that I deeply struggle in. And so if you're like me and struggle with self-control, just realize that you might want to uh, make a conscious and concerted effort to improve upon that area. That way that you can um, experience the grace and blessings of God that come along with um, improving upon your spiritual disciplines. So with that said, uh, I'm going to say a quick prayer and then we will get into this week's episode where we are going to continue our conversation on the Trinity and then move into the person of Christ. So let's pray real, real, real quick and dedicate this time to the Lord, and then we'll dive in. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, make this podcast once again. I thank you for those who listen 
And I pray that this is podcast is a blessing to them. And I pray, Father, that it glorifies you and that it changes lives. I pray that all of us would, through this podcast, get to know you more deeply and more soundly and that we would grow in a in our knowledge and understanding of you and that our relationship with you and our fellowship with you would be greatly improved and enhanced by that. Father, bless our time now. I pray that you would send your spirit and cover us and teach us what you would have us to learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. So if you remember last week, we started with uh, we started on the topic of the Trinity and we left off with the historical misunderstandings of the Trinity. So we're going to take a look at how historically people have strayed in error in their understanding of the Trinity. And then we're going to look at um, four practical implications of the Trinity. So with that said, one of the most fundamental ways people have misunderstood the Trinity is what's is what's called tri, tritheism, which overemphasizes the distinction between the persons of the Trinity and ends up with three gods. So believers and non-believers alike are often confused by the Trinity. And it is a very complex concept to wrap one's mind around because, you know, it's we it's three persons and one God. So we don't serve three gods. Christianity is not polytheistic. It's monotheistic. But a lot of people tend to, you know, get lost and bogged down in the fact that God can exist Three, three distinct persons and one God. Uh, the view, the view of tritheism, neglects the oneness of the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the other end of the spectrum, it is indeed the heresy of modalism, also known as Sabellianism, named after his earliest proponent. Uh, Sabellius, who lived in the third century. And with uh, Sabellianism, you lose the distinctions between the persons and the claims that God is only one person. In this view, the appearance of the three persons is merely three modes of existence. So in Sabellianism, you basically are saying that God exists not in three distinct persons, but in three modes. So it's kind of like a car. Uh, he's switching gears when he's, you know, changing his persons, basically. You know, he's acting as God the Father, and then he's shifting into a different mode and acting as God his Son. Then he's shifting the gear again and acting as God the Holy Spirit. That's basically what Sabellianism is saying and that's that's heresy that's incorrect god does not change from being the father the son and the holy spirit he's all three at one time in one god it's three unique persons acting together in one person or in one god i meant to say uh for instance god reveals himself as father when he is creating and giving the law He's acting as son when he is redeeming mankind, and he's acting as his spirit in the church 
as he helps us understand what the Bible teaches and how to be more Christ-like. A contemporary version of modalism is found in the teaching of the oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, so that's more of a modern, contemporary version of modalism. Both triethism and modalism fail to maintain the biblical balance between the one reality of God and his eternal existence in three persons. A third error is to deny the full deity of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to say that they were at some time created. And you can see that in uh, sects such as... Um, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, they they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Um, so, and then you can also see, you know, and there are people, you know, they say that uh, Jesus was created or that he's an angel, but that is in fact wrong. He is God incarnate. He is the God man. He and God are equal. They also believe, you know, certain People such as uh, Arnianism, after the teachings named of Arius, who lived in between 256 and 336 AD, uh, which is again today um, known as the Jehovah Witnesses, also deny that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, that he is equal with God. So again, the Jehovah Witnesses are a key sect of people uh, that do not believe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are equal with God. They believe that they were created and that uh, um, they uh, do not operate as God and work as God and have no equality with God. So hope that's clear there. Uh, so now we're going to look at some practical implications. So what are what are some ways that we can apply uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the first way is it, it makes definitive relation uh, revelation of God possible as he is known in Christ. So the Trinity helps us see and understand God better, uh, especially in the person of Christ. Uh, the Bible says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And that's in John 1.18. So basically, no man has seen God the Father except through the person of Jesus Christ, because God has made himself known through his son Jesus in human flesh. Now, no man can see God and live, says Exodus 33:20. But God the Son provided an actual manifestation of God the flesh. So thanks to the triunity of God, man can actually look upon God himself. Uh, the Trinity makes atonement possible. So, redemption of sinful man is accomplished through the distinct and unified activity of each person of the Godhead. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead, works to serve the living God, says Hebrew 19.14. So, God the Father orchestrated 
the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the Father's will and uh, basically took our place on the cross as our propitiation, as our substitution, and bore the wrath and our punishment so that we might become his righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit, when Christ ascended, came and he helps us grow in the image of Christ. So there you can see the, the Trinity working through the atonement and redemption of man. A third implication is because God is triune, he has eternally been personal and relational with his own being in full independence from his creation. God has never had any unmet needs, nor he's, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed everything, anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Personhood becomes real only within realized relationships, and the reality of the relationship can only exist where one has something or someone uh, that is not oneself to relate to. If then God had not been plural in himself, he could not have been personal, relational God till he had begun creating, and thus would have been dependent on creation for his own personhood which is a notion as nonsensical as the uns- as it is unscriptural. Between the persons of the Trinity, there has always existed total re- relational harmony and expression. God is, from this standpoint, a perfect society in and of himself. Apart from the plurality and the Trinity, either God's eternal independence of the created order or his eternal relational personal experience would have be would have to be denied so that's to say apart from the trinity god's independence of his creation and his eternally relational personal existence and experience would would have to be shut down it would you would not be valid to assert either of those things without the trinity And lastly, the Trinity provides the ultimate model of relationships within the body of Christ and marriage. The doctrine of the Trinity is well beyond human ability to ever fully comprehend. However, it is central to understanding the nature of God and the central events in the history of salvation in which God is seen acting as, in effect, a tri-personal team. Biblical Christianity stands or falls with the Trinity. So as you can see, this is a paramount, vital, doctrinal understanding. If you don't, if you can't somewhat grasp the Holy Spirit, then your idea of Christianity is going to be flawed. This is not one of those doctrines that, you know, is an opinion or you know, falls under the, falls under the, uh, you know, I realm of questions or convictions. No, the Trinity falls under the absolutes. It is an absolute doctrine and to get it wrong can fundally, uh, can fundamentally harm, uh, or destroy your 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 spirituality. So, 
like like I said previously, it stands or falls with the Trinity. So, so that wraps up the Trinity. So that is an overview of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity. So we are finished with that for now. We are now going to move on to the second person of the Godhead. Uh, that is the person of Christ. So four statements must be understood and affirmed in order to attain a complete biblical picture of the person, Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. Number two, Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Number three, the divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. And number four, the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. So uh, those are four statements that you must come to grips with, understand, and believe to have an accurate view of Jesus. So let's take a dive into the deity of Christ. There are many scripture passages that demonstrate that Jesus is fully and completely God. The first one is John chapter 1, verses 1 and verses 4. 14. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Another passage is John 1.18, which says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Himself known. He has made Him known. So again, that goes back to what we talked about earlier with God making himself known through his son, Jesus, when we were talking about the Trinity. Again, in John 20, 28, uh, the, apostle Tom, the disciple Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So he called Jesus God. He believed that Jesus himself was God. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever amen that's Romans 9 verse 5 Philippians 2 5 through 7 says having have this in mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Uh, in Titus chapter 2.13, we read, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1.3, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.8 and verse 10 says, but the son he said, but of the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. And then finally, 2 Peter 1 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have tamed a faith and equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's nine passages of Scripture declaring that Jesus Christ is God. 
he is not created. He is not an angel. He is divinely human. He is divinely God and human. And he is to be considered God. He is equal with God. And remember that the Bible is the breath of God. It is the very word of God. And so the Holy Spirit speaking through these men is, again, asserting that Jesus is God. And uh, Jesus, in all throughout Scripture, says of himself that he is God. So, with that said, let's look at Jesus' own understanding of his deity. We looked at the deity of Christ and, and several passages through the eyes of the uh, men who penned Scripture. So now we're going to look at how Jesus viewed his own deity. Uh, so even though the passages above teach the deity of Christ, this truth is, is, is challenged. People still don't regard Christ as God. Some say that Jesus never claimed to be God, which is false, and that these verses were written by his disciples who defied him because of the impact, who, excuse me, who deified him, not defied him, who deified him because of the impact he had on their lives. Basically, they're saying that they exalted him to God level and status because of what he did in their lives. Jesus, it is claimed, only saw himself as a great moral teacher, as some say he saw himself as a prophet or a good person or, you know, like, a, a, you know, the rabbi in that day, which rabbi means teacher as in a teacher, as an instructor, such as, you know, Aristotle's or Socrates, uh, you know, a, a very prominent religious leader. However, Jesus' understanding of his own deity in the gospel does not support this perspective. He clearly saw himself as God, and this can be seen in six primary ways. And I'm going to try to get through all six today. If we can't, we'll get through as many as we can, and we will catch up with the rest next week because I am running out of time. So let's go ahead and dive into the first one. Jesus taught with divine authority. At the end of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That can that's written in Matthew 7, 28 through 9 through 29. The teachers of the law in Jesus' day had no authority of their own. Their authority came from their use of earlier authorities. Even Moses and the other Old Testament prophets. And authors did not speak in their own authority, but would say, this is what the Lord says. This is the Lord's word. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, interprets the law by saying, you have heard that it is said that it was said, but I say to you, and you can see instances of in, all through the book of Matthew. This divine authority is shown with staggering clarity when he speaks of himself as the Lord who will judge the whole earth it will say to the wicked, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No wonder the crowd was amazed at the authority with which Jesus spoke. Jesus recognized that his words carried divine weight. He acknowledged the permanent authority of the law and put his words on an equal plane with it. 
Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Number two, Jesus had a unique relationship with God the Father. When he was a young boy, Jesus sat with the religious leaders in the temple, amazing people with the answers he gave. When his distraught parents finally found their lost boy, he replied by saying, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I was that I must be in my father's house? And you can read that in Luke 2 through 49. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Jesus' reference to God as my father is a radical statement of a unique, intimate relationship with God of which he was already fully conscious. Such a reference by any individual was unprecedented in the Jewish literature. Jesus took this unique personal address to another level by referring to God the Father using the affectionate Aramaic expression, Abba. Number three, Jesus' favorite self-designation was the title Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man can mean merely a human being, but Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, implying the unique, well-known Son of Man, which indicates that he sees himself as the Messianic Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, who is to rule over the whole world for all eternity. And Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which would be God the Father, and was pre presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus establishes his divine authority as the glorious messianic son of man by declaring that he has the power to forgive sin and is Lord of the Sabbath. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. That's seen in Mark chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's seen in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28. Number four, Jesus' teaches, teach, Jesus's teachings emphasize his own, his own identity. Jesus came teaching the kingdom of God, and in it, he was the king. His teaching dealt with many topics, but was central about himself. His question to his disciples, but what, but who do you say I am, found in Matthew 16, 15, is the ultimate question of his ministry. And you go and you read in Matthew, the disciples answers. See how they answered Jesus. Because during that time, different people were saying, oh, he's Elijah. Or he's John the Baptist resurrected. So just go and see who they say, who who they were saying he was, and then compare the disciples' answers. Number five, Jesus received worship. Now, if Jesus was only a man and he would and he received worship from other human beings, that would be blasphemy. And it would be heresy. 
because we are called to only worship the one true living God. Anything uh, outside of that is idolatry. It's false worship and it's breaking God's law. But Jesus received it. Perhaps the most radical demonstration of Jesus' beliefs that he was God is the fact that he received worship. He accepted the worship. Jesus did not believe. Jesus would not have accepted this worship if he did not believe that he was God. He would have rejected it. So that that's the fifth way that we can clearly realize and visualize that Jesus saw himself as God as God. And finally, Jesus equated himself with the Father. And as a result, the Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy. Uh, and there are several passages here. Uh, John 5, 17 through 18 says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 8, 58 through 59 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. A clear allusion to the sacred divine name, Yahweh. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And then we'll read one more here. John 10, 30 through 33 says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because being a man, you make yourself God. So as you can see, on multiple occasions, the Jews took great offense to Jesus equating himself with God, so much so that they threatened to take his life, but they could not take his life because he gave his life. So that wraps it up for this week, guys. I appreciate you taking the time to tune in to this podcast. We will continue on the topic of Jesus, and we will be looking at the implications of his deity next week. So I hope that you will come back and that you will tune in to next week's episode.